Drive, kid throws it up. Oh! How did he do it? Randall on the drive, stripped by Butler. Randall gets it back. Randall puts up a three. Bang! Bang! Randall knocks down the three with seven tenths of a second remaining. With full court press coverage on all of the signings, trades, big games, and everything Knicks, Nets, and across the association, this is Pick and Pod on WFUV Sports. How's it going, everybody? Will Talon here, joined by Miles Grossman and Colin Lochran. Another time. It's the second time in three weeks. It's got to be, right, with this trio. Running it back on Pick and Pod. A little role reversal here, though. I'll be taking over as a host. We're just going to do a little shift. Colin's going to go to B, and Miles will be locking it down on C. But still, lots to talk about as we go into the NBA All-Star break. It was a very exciting first half, especially in New York. A little bit on the... The, the down the the downward spiral if you want to put it that way to conclude the first half for both New York teams one in a little bit of a better position than the other but to be honest are they really right now I, I don't know and that team is the New York Knicks and that's where we're gonna start our show but before we get into that Colin and miles how are you guys doing today big road trip coming up this weekend for both of y'all as always, Miles and I are headed to Dayton, Ohio, as the Fordham Rams take on the Flyers. We're going to get to see Deron Holmes, potentially an NBA prospect, really play some quality basketball. As far as those New York teams are concerned in the association, though, both of them badly needed the All-Star break for very different reasons, in my estimation. The Knicks, of course, have designs on making the playoffs. One could infer they have designs on potentially winning a championship. They need to get healthy, they need to get rested, they need to get right. The Nets, on the other hand, this break is more of like a white flag moment for them because they just want to go home and rest for a while before they have to finish this season, which feels inevitably like a failure. It's already a failure of a season, but the rest of it's just a formality at this point. I think the All-Star break will provide their front office with the chance to maybe reassess just where they are. Yeah, both these teams could use a break. I mean, particularly with the Knicks, that's just a case of needing to get healthy. But when you look at the Nets, I mean, they made national news with their most recent loss. I mean, the Nets, there's not that high of a standard that they're held to. But when you lose by 50 to the Celtics, then you get even Knicks guys on Twitter trashing you, right? It's, I mean, everyone seemed to be getting in on the Nets conversation just because of that lopsided score last time out. But it's true. It's been an extremely disappointing year for the Nets, and it's – What's really most frustrating is the lack of direction. I mean, there's really no nothing you can say about the next three years that looks like this is going to be a playoff team. And this is perfect. We got the color commentator and the play-by-play voice of Fordham men's basketball and also Knicks and Nets beat reporters. So lots to talk about here on this edition of Pick and Pot. And let's start with those new – actually, hold on. Yeah, that 50-point loss. Let's, let's just talk about <laughs> that for a second. 136 to 86. We'll talk about it further. But, man, that was a walloping. That's what that was to me. But let's start with the Knicks in Midtown. Losers of their last four straight, obviously plagued by injuries. One guy I want to highlight, though, he's been averaging eight and seven since coming over in the OG and Anobi trade, and that's Precious Achua. Double-double last night, or I should say not last night, on Wednesday against the Orlando Magic, a, a team that's had the Knicks number this entire season. The Knicks are 0-3 against the Orlando Magic. The Magic started off this season, they were the two seed for at least the first three or four weeks. The Knicks lost early then. Then they go into the Garden, they being the Magic, and take down the Brunsonless uh, New York Knicks at the time. And then, of course, the Knicks losing by 18 the last time out. But Precious Achua, 23-14, and 14, with five assists. I got to say, Colin, our Knicks beat reporter for this show, the front court passing. I'll be at the injuries with Randall and now Hartenstein. We'll talk about him in just a few moments as well. But the front court passing ha- has really stood out to me this season and has something it is something that's just been very impressive to me. But how what are your thoughts on Precious Atua? I mean, he's really, really getting a lot of he played forty three minutes the other day. You can see me smiling ear to ear right now because I've been wanting to talk about Precious Achua for quite some time. I actually did a pick and pod some weeks ago with Chris Persianen, my fellow Knicks beat reporter. And at the time, I had told him Achua is going to be an impact player at some point this year. I didn't know how. 
I didn't know in what way, but he clearly has been, and I knew from the minute that the Knicks got this guy, he was going to do something for them, if for no other reason than he attended school in the Bronx. He's not born and raised in New York, but he's lived in New York for the vast majority of his childhood. Went to our Savior Lutheran school, home of Jimmy or Tripp, Fordham Ram. I saw a picture of him with the Yankee hat, very similar to the one I'm wearing now. Had the Tim's rocking. I'm like, yeah, this guy's a Nick, and he's been very good in a time where the Knicks have needed him to be very good. Is he the sort of guy that's going to give you 14, 15 a night religiously? No, probably not. But if you need him to do so, can he get you some gritty offensive rebounds, get you a putback here and there? Yeah, he most certainly can. And the other thing about him is he's not afraid to shoot the three. I'm not saying he's my first option to shoot the three. Obviously not. Not when the Knicks have guys like Dante DiVincenzo, Jalen Brunson. But if you were looking to space the floor, Achua might be wide open at a certain point. I would let it fly if I were him. So as far as the Knicks are concerned from a, a broad perspective, this is about getting healthy. I look at the stats a lot. I'm a numbers-oriented person. This is one of the few times with the New York Knicks specifically where I can say the stats aren't indicative of where the team is because not everyone is healthy. There's not a big enough sample size to see what they're really going to be when everybody is healthy. I don't know what it looks like when Julius Randle, Bogdanovich, Burks, Brunson, OG are all healthy and on the court together. We don't know what that final product looks like just yet, which is something you could never say as a Knicks fan. Even in the Tom Thibodeau era, I remember back to the first year they made the playoffs, uh, 2021, it was about that idea of, do they have enough stat-wise? Are they scoring enough points per game? Are they stealing baskets when they can? Are they creating opportunities in transition? Because let's be honest, that team was Julius Randle and Derrick Rose scoring the ball. There was no way that they were going to make a deep playoff run with Reggie Bullock as one of the main shooting options. And that's not a knock on Bullock. Reggie Bullock, though, 3D. <laughs> love, love and that's where the Knicks were. Look at how far they're player. You've got Jalen Brunson averaging a career high in terms of points per game. This is a team that just needs to get healthy, and you could never say that as a Knicks fan before. Maybe the last time you could say that is in the 90s, and it's been a long time since then. Even with the mellow J.R. Smith teams, it was more of can they outpace a squad like Miami? A squad like Boston? Can the shooting be good enough? This time, it's just about can you get healthy, can you get on the court, and then can you operate together as a team? And I think that last point is the key because you're going to get these guys back from injury, right? These are not season-ending injuries across this New York Knicks roster. The problem is when you get these guys back in the second half, these are going to be guys all coming off of injuries. And as we've seen throughout the league, right? I mean, particularly the first thing that comes to mind is Clay Thompson about how different a human being can be coming off a tough injury, right? I mean, Julius Randle is not dealing with a Clay Thompson type of injury, but I think it's going to take him a couple weeks to get back to his normal self. I mean, I like the points about Precious Achua because I, you got to love the way he's physically built. I don't think that I had very high expectations for him coming in, but now with this wonky New York Knicks lineup, it's like Dante Givintenzo is a reliable New York Knick now, and then Precious Achua, a reliable New York Knick. I think, you know, They'll obviously be slotted back into those role-player positions, hopefully come playoff time. I think the only part that worries me most, Colin, is, you know, will those be starters in starter spots come playoff time? Just something I wanted to add to the fray here. I'm not concerned about Julius Randle at all once he gets back because I think so much of the weight has been lifted off of his shoulders by the virtue of the moves that the Knicks have made. Look at who's around Julius Randle now as opposed to who was around him in 2021. It's going to look completely different. And moreover, you're going to see him play a little bit more ground and pound, I would suspect, because now he's surrounded by Bogdanovich, Burks, perimeter shooters, a vastly improved DiVincenzo, a perimeter shooter, Brunson, someone that can space the floor and shoot a three, someone like Precious Achua that will take some of the defensive responsibility away from Randall at times. So on the offensive end, you could see a much more aggressive Julius Randle in the paint, and he's already pretty damn aggressive in the paint. And he was an all-NBA guy, being that aggressive paint presence and that three-point shooter. we got to remember, the, the kind of three-point averages he had posted in the last two seasons, unbelievable. Now, not really having to use... As a big, too. As a big, right? Complete stretch four kind of mentality, but he's totally not built like a stretch four. When I see a stretch four, I'm looking at, like, Chris Tapps, Porzingis, mm -hmm. obviously he's lanky. like seven four, but lanky, absolutely. Randall is not that, but he could he can provide that part of his game while also being this bruiser as well. 
And I like that you point out the first playoff team here, Colin, because Randall coming back, it's if we look at that 2021 team, if Randall got hurt, then it was over. The season was over. Like he's not coming back to a team where he's going to have to carry the whole way through. I will never understand why Knicks fans have given Julius Randall such a hard time to the extent they have. I understand the playoff play has been poor. Granted, it's New York. You expect a certain level of guff to be given if you can't step up in the biggest moments. But I look back on that COVID season. Look at what was going on in the scope of the city. You had the Nets falling out in Brooklyn. That was the Kyrie, KD, Harden Height era. Of it. Height of that. And the Knicks were very good that year as well. Julius Randle, by all accounts, should have been that sort of New York folklore hero. For that time in the city's history, it makes no sense to me. I can remember coming home from work and watching Julius Randle save the Knicks bacon on more than one occasion. Oh, let me let me clear it up a little bit though. Why why did it make sense then though? Because they wanted KD. All the Knicks fans wanted KD and Kyrie and they were balling out in Brooklyn and it's like, damn, what are we missing out on? Why did we not get that? Well now we all know why the Knicks didn't go after KD and Kyrie. That they're both on complete different teams now. So <laughs> and that was three short years ago so they said it was going to be scary hours and it was just for reasons that had nothing to do with the (laughs) actual encore product it was very (laughs) scary but the three-point options though back to that original conversation look at what the kind of options that the knicks have now we're talking about reggie bullock that that team averaged 89 points per game just about now that that's not even a problem reggie bullock you are hoping he was on the court so you would have a chance at a three now i'm looking up and down this roster Jalen Brunson, Alec Burks, Deuce McBride. I'm going to throw him in there. He's had some pretty big three-point performances. Bogdan, uh, Boyan Bogdanovich, OG Ananobi, Dante DiVincenzo, and I'm pro- I'm not, Alec Burks. I'm going to throw him in there too because he was a great shooter for the Knicks when he was with them originally, and now he's back. He, provi- he packs a little bit of a punch. He had 13 points in 30 minutes the other night. Bogdanovich is unreal from behind the arc, shooting roughly 41% from three-point land this year. Now, obviously, it's not a Steph Curry. Obviously, it's not a Clay Thompson. But for what the Knicks are looking for him to do, it's pretty darn good. He's a guy that can space the floor, and I think something you're going to see now is you have to respect the Knicks from three-point land. That's something that was not necessarily the case last year. Now, they had guys that could shoot the three last season, Emmanuel quickly, R.J. Barrett, somewhat consistently. R.J., not even with the consistency but, the, with the players that right. have now. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm saying now you have to respect them from there in a way you didn't before, Absolutely. and I think ultimately that opens up the inside even more so, especially with a smaller guard like Brunson who can drive and kick towards the paint. So there's a lot of offensive possibilities that will open up for the Knicks to the point where you start to look at the Eastern Conference, are you really scared about Orlando or Indiana in the same way you might have been before all these trades were made? I don't think so, because I had reservations earlier in the year about the original Knicks roster competing against a young, hungry team in the first round like Orlando or Indiana. With these moves, you can safely say that if all goes according to plan, big knock on wood, the Knicks should be in the second round, no problem. And, you know, I'm looking at the teams that are in that one through six range in the Eastern Conference. And right now, even that Pacers loss most recently, I believe it was about a 14 or a 15-point loss. Still, not not a single star on this Knicks roster. I'm talking Precious Achua is the starting small forward or power forward, whatever it is. He's such a good rotational piece, and he's getting starter minutes. And yet they still had like a three- or a four-point margin against a fully healthy Orlando, excuse me, Indiana Pacers team. Same with the with the Orlando Magic as well. The lead was not it was not an 18 point lead the entire time for the Magic. They kind of pulled away a little bit, but what I'm saying is that this Knicks bench that is the starting unit can hang with the teams that are in their category right now. What does that say for when the team is fully healthy? Now, before, because I do want to talk Paolo Boncaro real quick because he did have one heck of a game against the Knicks before we shift to the Nets, but I want to throw this out here to you guys real quick. Boston, Cleveland, Milwaukee, New York, Philly, Indiana. That's the top six in the Eastern Conference. With the exception of Boston, I think the New York Knicks can take all four of those teams in a series without a doubt, in my opinion. It's going to be close for me. I mean, a lot of those teams, as you touched on, Orlando, they're a young young squad. And it's like... And they have the Knicks number. It, and especially that, you know, I'm, you know, I look at the West Western Conference. I see Oklahoma City as that young 
gun run run team that can be a top squad in the NBA in a couple years. And a poor man squad on the East is kind of like the Orlando Orlando Magic team to me. In like three, four years, that's going to be a top team in the East. Maybe it's not this year. I still think that the Knicks are would have trouble with a lot of those top-tier teams in the East. They're not necessarily – it's not like it's them in the Celtics, right? They're not a one-two punch with the Celtics atop the East. But they're right there with the young, up-and-coming teams. I don't know if Orlando's the poor man's squad. I mean, they got that Disney endorsement deal rocking. They're doing pretty well financially. <laughs> Let's not get that twisted. But as far as the Knicks go in the Eastern Conference, I see it very much as them being the third-best team. In the conference, I think Boston is the class of the East at the moment. Nobody can deny that. When right, and we're going to talk about this later, Milwaukee's the second best team from a talent perspective. Everyone else is about at the same level, and with Embiid's injury, it's even more so the case. It comes down to who do you trust the most of those kind of secondary tier teams, and it has to be the New York Knicks. Indiana, Orlando are young. Cleveland did not show up last postseason. There's no reason to believe they're going to show up magically this year. Not a great year. I agree, <laughs> but call me in April. Call me in May mm-hmm. when it gets a little bit tighter, when teams start playing defense on every possession. And then the factor that I think we should talk about here just quickly, Jalen Brunson wants to win every game. It's this quality that not every player has, and I don't like the fact that it gets so easily dismissed when talking about Jalen Brunson, because when you get towards those postseason competitions, it's going to matter. Look at Game 6 against Miami last year. Brunson did everything he could to drag the Knicks back to Game 7, and drag is the word, because nobody was playing particularly efficient basketball, and he came pretty darn close. I believe the final score was 96-92. I think they lost by four points or something like that. It was very close, and Brunson almost got them back single-handedly to Game 7. So, If you had to ask me who's going to be able to come out on top, if it was the Knicks and the Cavs or the Knicks and Magic, I'm taking Brunson, I'm taking the Knicks, and I'm also taking Tom Thibodeau in that kind of format because say what you will about him running the starters, his old school mentality, I just think he's been around for so long. There's that part of him. It's a little bit like Dusty Baker where he just wants that one. Just get him that chip some way, somehow. I think he's hanging on for that chip. I don't know if it comes this year. But that type of determination counts for me. You know, Dusty Baker, he did hang on. He got his <laughs> world championship in I 2022. Like well, you know, it's a very fair one, too, to be honest, because Tom Thibodeau's been a name kind of almost as much of a staple as LeBron James has been in my, you know, fandom of the NBA. I've heard Tom Thibodeau's name out there just as much as I've heard LeBron in the coaching world, obviously. For as long as I can remember watching the NBA, so and it, the same goes with Dusty Baker in Major League Baseball. It's the same deal. So I really do like that comparison there, Colin. But I guess to conclude our Jalen, or not our Jalen Brunson talk specifically, but our New York Knicks talk for right now, I think drag is the term that needs to be eliminated, especially when it comes to the postseason. Because going back to 2021, what was that? Julius Randle, Derrick Rose, dragging them to. Five games against the Hawks last year, dragging them six games against the Heat, whatever the case may be. Eliminate that drag and work as this fully well-oiled machine. I'm telling you, this team is scary. Just need all of the pieces coming back together. Before we switch gears entirely to Brooklyn, I want to highlight Paolo Boncaro's play for a second. I've just been, I, he is just unbelievable. I, I was fortunate enough to go cover that Magic and Knicks game, the last game in the Garden. They were in Orlando for this last loss for the Knicks. But uh, Paolo, he only had 20 in that game at the Garden, but five of those points came in the fourth quarter. And that that's not a lot, but four of them came in the last two minutes, and that's when the Knicks completely lost the game. This game now, Paolo Boncaro, 36 points. It's the third um, most amount of points that he scored in his career. And it's the 15th plus 30 plus point game for Paulo Boncaro in his young career. First time All-Star as well. And the reason I want to bring this up, because it kind of spawned off of something that you said here, Miles. They're kind of that young blood team in the Eastern Conference, similar to how OKC is in the West. They're just a little bit behind, obviously. Paulo Boncaro, though, playing team right now. I want to hear what you guys have before we talk about the Nets. Does he have that gear? him right now in his second year to push 
this Orlando Orlando Magic team out of the play-in into that first first round series. Does he have that kind of gear yet? Have you guys seen that out of him? Because this 36-point performance, third of this season, and the top seven-point scoring games that he's had in his career all came in this season. There's something to this kid that people projected, but I think we're seeing it now. I think it's true. I think he's becoming himself in this NBA. And I mean, first overall pick in 2022, there's expectations with that. And immediately, I I think I sort of wrote him off as this guy was a little overrated. I mean, 101 expectations come with that, but he's got the body for it. And I think, you know, now that he's got a little bit of help, I I love Franz Wagner in particular. And, And, you know, I think that he is the type of player that can bring Orlando into a first round of the Eastern Conference playoffs, but I, I, at this point, that's about the ceiling for this Orlando team, but absolutely. I mean, 36 is a legit performance. You, you look at the way he's built in particular. I mean, for his age, his ceiling is through the roof. So it might be the Duke in him that makes me feel this way, but Vanchero is reminding me a lot of Jason Tatum's mm, development. I think Vanchero is a more talented player than Tatum on a baseline level. But the development is strangely similar to me, and I can't help but think that's the pedigree of coming from somewhere like Duke, where you're expected to play at a certain level from the get-go, especially now in the era of one and done and things of that sort. I look at the career numbers for both Tatum and Banchero. Banchero's averaging more assists per game in less games overall. Banchero at 4.4 assists per game, Tatum at 3.5 assists per game. The points per game is where it gets even more interesting for the career. Now, obviously, Tatum had to develop as a Boston Celtic girl in his career, the same way Banchero was developing with the Orlando Magic. Tatum, 23 points per game throughout his career. Banchero, 21.3 points per game. That's extremely close. Now, remember, Jason Tatum was the number one option on a team that went to the NBA Finals and nearly outdueled the Golden State Warriors. Now, fell in six games, but they got to the big dance. So if you're telling me that the comp for Banchero is Tatum on a very loose level. I'm not getting into size and athleticism and things of that sort, but if you're telling me it's close, then there's no reason to believe that this can't be a moment in which Manchero turns on the Jets and makes that next step. I'm not saying it's the final step, it's just the next step in his progression. The kid was born in 2002. He's 21 years old. He's six foot ten with a 7 foot 6 wingspan. I mean, that's just an unbelievable combination of factors. Like, you gotta think that in the next five years, this is a perennial all-star for sure. He's already got his first one in his second season, and that Duke comparison there is it's real. The Duke forwards that we've seen, I would say in the last 10 years, especially with Tatum and Boncaro really locking it down, some really, really impressive stuff. Um, You know, Paolo Boncaro is just so, so impressive to me. Shows a little bit of flashes of mellow just based on his one-on-one. Tatum has that too, but Tatum's kind of like this all-around guy. Obviously, mellow was like that, but when I when I first started watching the NBA, Mello was strictly like he took over the ball. But man, if it was one on one, Mello was cooking you. Boncaro has that. I've seen him go one on one on some guys, and they're food. They are food for him. <laughs> and it's like not even close. We're talking like seasoned veterans out here. This kid is 21 years old. We're all three of us are older than him. I'm <laughs> older than him, and I'm the youngest one here. He's like, it's just unbelievable his kind of game and I'm very very excited to see where he goes moving forward definitely as you said Miles perennial all-star written all over him but let's go cross town now let's go visit those Brooklyn Nets oh man 50 point loss the other day uh, it doesn't really get much worse the leading scorer is trending uh, uh, what was his what's his what's his name Trenton Wat- Watford Watford yes sir 15 points <laughs> in 25 minutes off the bench no disrespect to Trenton I've just never heard him before LSU never heard of him before but Miles, you're our Nets guy here, man. Mm-hmm. We were talking about it pre-show. They did not pick a direction in the trade deadline. That was a very even keel trade they made with the Toronto Raptors. Let's start right there. Dennis Schroeder comes over. Your thoughts on that trade? What does that do for them? And also, they did nothing with Ben Simmons or Lonnie Walker the fourth. What are your overall thoughts and reactions 
post-trade deadline? And what do you see their direction as, even though they didn't really pick one? Well, it, a lot of lateral moves, like you said, at the trade deadline. I like the addition of Dennis Schroeder, given where the Nets were at in this spot. I mean, they kind of backed themselves into a corner, in a sense. You look at how they handled the last couple trade deadlines, hanging on to bridges when they could have sold for three or four first-rounders. And I think that's kind of the point where once you committed to them two off-seasons ago and last, or really just last off-season, pardon me, you said that this is a franchise player, right? Sean Marks committed to Bridges being the face of the Brooklyn Nets, and when it was almost put in his face that this is time to give up on it, he was unwilling. And I think that's really why, to me, the culprit has to be Sean Marks. Everyone's calling for Jock Vaughn's job, but it's bigger than that. They say on Twitter, oh, Jock Vaughn lost the locker room. How is a coach supposed to keep the locker room when you got a group of role players and then Cam Thomas? I mean, to me, Cam Thomas is the only name on this roster that in four or five years, he could be something that he's not today. Even a guy like Bridges, this is peak Bridges. You look at Cam, Tom, Cam Johnson. This is Pete Cam Johnson. It's a tough situation for the Brooklyn Nets because there's not much of a future beyond the budding name in Cam Thomas. And to me, there's really only one person to blame for that, Sean Marks. What is Jacques Vaughn to do? This is year seven of the Sean Marks era. And in this trade deadline, year seven, seven years in, nothing to show for it, no direction chosen. If that's not a fireable offense, I honestly don't really know what it is. I think they gambled on the idea that Ben Simmons was going to play more than he has and that he was going to be a consistent sort of point guard for this Nets team because they don't really have a true point guard, which for some teams works. I mean, look at the Boston Celtics. They've operated in different seasons without that pure point guard. Now, it's a little bit different this year with someone like Holiday along with Tatum, but there was a time when Marcus Smart, more of a shooting guard forward, was operating as their point guard. So that works for some teams, but not for a team like the Brooklyn Nets, where you look at Mikael Bridges, you look at someone like Cameron Johnson, even Cam Thomas. None of them are great with the basketball. None of them are great playmakers. And I just feel as though they limited themselves in that regard. When you don't have a pure point guard that can spread the ball, it was never going to be a fantastic output. And I think that's why they have played better when Ben Simmons has been on the court. Now, that's not even crediting Ben Simmons because he's been on the court, what, he's played 12 Seven games this year? 12 games? It's up to 12. Wow. It's up to, I know, it's, it's amazing. There it's up go. to 12 now. You can't play 12 games and expect to be the team's leading point guard. So from here, if you're Sean Marks, you're the Nets front office, it may be time to blow this thing up sky high. I was not a proponent of that before the deadline, but I've seen enough now, especially after that lackluster game against the Celtics. And more so it's because... I don't think Bridges or Cam Thomas, and I could be wrong, or Cameron Johnson want to be anything more than they are. I don't get that burning sense of desire to be all-time greats the same way I do when I look at a LeBron, when I look at a KD, when I look at even someone like Brunson. Like, Brunson is probably not going to be an all-time great. But there's this passion that you cannot help but notice when he plays. You can see it in his eyes. When I look in the eyes of Mikael Bridges and Cameron Johnson— I see guys that are kind of just hooping. They're happy to be there. They're shooting some hoops. They're seeing Playing their buddies. Playing in New York. They're play I mean, Don't oh, get the attention of Midtown because they're in Brooklyn kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Now, you know, it's kind of like working at your local Chase branch in a Goldman Sachs town. That's how it is playing mm. for the Brooklyn Nets right now. And those guys don't have the desire to really elevate the Nets brand or their own brand as NBA players. So you cannot build around that. It's time to blow this thing up. You tried. Scary hours didn't work. And then you tried to salvage it after the fact. I just think this era needs to be put to rest. I think it's true what you said, Colin, especially about, you know, just that, la that, that look in the eyes, right? And I think that's probably why Jock Vaughn has gotten so much flack on Twitter as of late. So many people calling for Jock Vaughn's job because when the Nets go out on the floor, they look like they don't want it as much as the other team. But. I'd make the argument that that's bigger than Jacques Vaughn. These players are self-aware NBA players just like the neck, just like the rest of them. And you know, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but when you see Bridges go on the roommate podcast, right, and have to talk to fellow NBA players about what it's like to be in Brooklyn, you see more of a defeated look in the man's eyes and it's hard to blame him, it's hard to blame the coaching staff. It's a group of role players being forced to compete against top-tier NBA talent night in and night out. That's going to be demoralizing. And, you know, especially when 
you have some legitimate deals that you have some legitimate names with legitimate money right now and there's no future that's going to be demoralizing i also feel like they benefited greatly from having a head start last season because remember once katie and Kyrie left the nets were in position to make a playoff run so when bridges and cameron johnson got there it was more of like let's finish the job and get to the dance oh and they were they doing had that motivation so completely. they were doing so well that they all of their acquisitions they their record was so good that their acquisitions all they had to do was just play well enough to make the playoffs and that's exactly what happened Katie and Kyrie got them that record got traded and then the Nets squeezed into the playoffs with what they had left because their record was so good at the at the deadline and I'll never forget one of the quotes that came out from Bridges after he was trading that package for Durant was oh well I can't be too mad about it I was traded for for Kevin Durant what great player says that <laughs> ever? That's basically an admission of no. You were right to trade me. I'm fine in Brooklyn now because you got back someone. He's now, a self-aware multi-millionaire. Is I don't what care he is. how self-aware you are. You gotta want it if you're trying to be one of the best players in the associate. You cannot. Say I think where that like comes that. from for me, Colin, is the fact that this generation of NBA players is so financially secure that they can almost take a step back. And not have that same level of Kobe intensity. I'm sorry, maybe I'm just too old school. When I prefer someone like a Magic or a Larry I'm Bird right that's you. playing to make something themselves. I I look at it like this: McCall Bridges, at the time of that trade, was 26. Kevin Durant was 35. McCall Bridges grew up watching Kevin Durant. Even still, I, I mean, but dude, mm-hmm. so, Kevin Durant, though, all due respect, I I hear what you're saying. He's going to go down as one of the best scorers we have ever seen. So that kind of comment to me is more out of respect. Um, and go, Mikal Bridges was like going to be the face of the Brooklyn Nets after that trade. So yeah, it's like, man, yeah, dude, I mm. you should look at it in more of a respect way. Man, I was the guy that got traded for Kevin Durant. The Nets want me in return for their stud all-time great basketball player. See now, Kevin Durant, <laughs> probably my favorite player, all time. One of my favorite. Miles, really, Miles knows this about me. Big Kevin Durant guy. But I was until Golden State. <laughs> see, I, I liked the Golden State arc and the Brooklyn. Fair arc one. That's fair. No, I, I also like some of the the chirping he does, which is related to what I'm about to tell you with mm-hmm. Bridges. Where is that mentality? You cannot have it both ways. Where you want right. to be the guy. And then just back down whenever it's convenient. Because that seems to be where this train is headed to where you can't blame Mikhail Bridges for not stepping up because he's not ready yet. Well, you wanted to be the guy. You were traded for someone who was the guy. You flat out said, yeah, well, it's good that I was (laughs) traded. Even if you want to take it with what you were saying, Will. Then the mentality shifts to, oh, well, they traded for me. Which means they think I can replace some of what KD was able to bring them I was never going to be exactly what KD was able to do for Brooklyn. But you get the point there. I just don't like that Brooklyn is hedging now. It has to be one or the other. You're either building around Mikhail Bridges and he wants to be built around, or you're not. You're going to have to start from square one. See, that's the disconnect in my opinion. Mikhail Bridges, to me, does not project as a number one. He was a number four or a six on that NBA Finals Suns team then moved into his starting role as a three or a four in the starting rotation. Now he's a one. I think he just worked so much better as a three or four. That's a story for a different time. But you guys are both both baseball guys. Before we get into that show, this is the best way that I can try to compare it. Looking at how the Yankees were last year, I compare them to the Brooklyn Nets this year. Why? Because the Nets, not nearly as good of a team as the Yankees in their respective leagues and respective sports. However... The Yankees did nothing at the deadline, and they kind of dictated the offseason as to which way they're going to go. 2024 for the New York Yankees is championship or bust now. For the Brooklyn Nets, I can see a similar story unfolding. However, not so much championship or bust. Stand pat at the deadline because nothing worked out. Brian Cashman, GM of the New York Yankees, was like, you know, no deals were really there. They traded mm-hmm. for one relief pitcher and really gave up nothing for him. There were no deals. So maybe in this in, in this instance, there were really no deals for the Nets to make. They were like, all right, let's trade Mikhail Bridges for two first-round picks right now because they want him, and it'll be better. 
but maybe we could have gotten him for three or four in the offseason. So they could just be standing pat and waiting for that offseason to unfold and decide which way they're going to go. For me personally, it should be blow-up mode. They should be going for the draft pick this year and then using what they have after this year to obtain more draft capital because that's how you win in the NBA now. Obtaining as look at the Knicks and the Thunder, prime examples. Obtain the Knicks did not give up one first round pick in all four of the trades they made in the deadline. Not one. They still have like all five in the next like two or three years. The Nets can stockpile on draft capital right now. It's gonna have to be an offseason move. But Miles, let's talk about that podcast for a second. Because we were all, all three of us were talking talking about it pre-show about this new podcast between Josh Hart and Jalen Brunson. They had one of their new guests. And I want to say it's the second or third episode, and it was Mikal Bridges. And uh, I, it's kind of funny, man. New York Nets, Brook, uh, New York Nets, New York Knicks and Brooklyn Nets on the same podcast as professionals. However, very, very close individuals between their times at Villanova. So what did you guys think of that, of the comments, and not only the comments, but the questions asked from Jalen Brunson and Josh Hart to Macau Bridges, all of them being active NBA players? Yeah, I did watch the Roommate podcast, and at moments I really cringed, I must say, because, you know, it, it's interesting. that Having, you know, this NBA player-led content opens up a whole new avenue of questioning, right? There are certain things that... NBA players can ask fellow NBA players that the media simply can't. Or if the media did ask, they would not get a response out of said player. If you were to ask Mikhail Bridges about having that New York Knick crowd in Barclays, he's going to give you something snarky if you talk to the media. But if you have a fellow Nova alum in Josh Hart, right? They're they're Josh and Brunson. All of them. All right? won a national championship together. So it's like two. They have that bond. They feel comfortable with one another. They can talk about anything. And they set Mikhail Bridges up to say a lot of negative things about his franchise, right? You have two New York Knicks saying negative stuff about Cam Thomas. You got two New York Knicks saying negative stuff about the Brooklyn Net fan base. And it's like, well, what is Bridges supposed to do? At this point, he's the face of the franchise. So what he's supposed to do is defend his fan base, defend what it is to be a Brooklyn Net. But what does he do? He kind of has that disheartened look in his eyes. He looks down, he has a little shrug, and he kind of swallows every punch that was thrown at him. Well, it's like what I was saying before. He's working at the local Chase branch in a Goldman Sachs town. And Brunson and Hart and DiVincenzo and all of the Nova Knicks have an understanding of that. I think that At there's... one time, Ryan Archidiacono. Correct. Correct. <laughs> Very important piece for the Knicks early in the season. There was a great athletic piece about him wor worth reading. But on the whole, I I'm not a big player podcast person. The only ones that I've listened to are this one now because I find it very intriguing and I cover the team and the New Heights podcast because I think the Kelseys are hilarious. That aside, this is opening up a whole new can of worms as it pertains to the relationship between the Knicks and Nets. It wasn't like that they were great trade partners before, but people have already floated out the idea. Could Bridges find a way to get to the Knicks? And with the team they have, he'd be a perfect fit somewhere there because they don't need a standard point guard. Brunson's already there. They could just have him ball out, shoot from the perimeter. Now, I don't think Brooklyn would ever deal him, but in a world where he forces his way there, you'd look at that podcast as the initial, oh my God, this is the new blueprint for how you yeah, can basically, this is how you can get your friends to play on your team. Now, this has always been happening. You think back to the decision with LeBron. I'm sure there were conversations had behind closed doors. Nobody is that naive to think that nobody looked at anyone over lunch one day and said, you know, I think we'd be pretty good if we're on the same team now. This is just openly cutting out the, the middleman, which used to be SportsCenter, ESPN, Whoa, Shams, you name it. This You're just is, getting it from the source yeah, this is now, now just, no, I think this would be a good team. Now, they didn't say so much. I haven't listened to the whole thing in detail. Yeah, I haven't listened to the whole thing I don't either. know if it was ever said, like, hey, I think we'd have a, a great squad again in the NBA. But you know the undertone is there, especially with all the media attention that the Knicks have gotten for that Villanova core. I like the podcast. I also like the athletes podcasting as well. Um, one thing that we talked about was being media trained. I think that'll come with time, especially with all these guys that are developing their podcasts right now. Um, you know, we, we preach it here. It, all, it just takes reps. 
they'll they'll you know they'll all figure out ways to do it. But I I genuinely really enjoyed the show. I didn't really see as much of the Macal Bridges episode that they had. I saw the one where Josh Hart was wearing the Apple Vision. <laughs> both of them are just hilarious. They're hilarious personalities. Adding a Macal Bridges to the mix is just even better too with all the Villanova connections and stuff like that. But yes, in a way, this could be tampering. This could be a way of teaming. Macal Bridges on the Knicks, uh, what would that starting five look like right now if it happened? Well, we have Brunson, OG, Macal Bridges, Randall, Mitch Robinson. Wow. That's a very, very nice looking on paper starting five. But, you know, that's a conversation for another time. The Roommates podcast, a fun podcast. I think that's going to do it for our New York coverage here. There's just two topics before we conclude our show entirely today. I want to bring up around the NBA and it's going to we're going to start here with the Milwaukee Bucks. Monster monster decision making here. Adrian Griffin fired. That was now 10 games ago and they replaced him with the legendary Doc Rivers and the Bucks are 3 and 7 since that hire. Colin, what are your thoughts on the Doc Rivers hire now that we're 10 games in? They've now also dropped from the 2 seed to the 3 seed because the Cavs not only have the Bucks played so well, but the Cavs have—they're like what eighteen and two in their last twenty games. What do you what what can you expect from this Milwaukee Bucks team? I I don't see them. I I could see them losing in the second round, in my opinion. That's where I'm going to end my my thought. But what do you see? I should preface this by saying I was never a fan of the Griffin hire. I always had an issue with it, especially after the way last season ended and the way in which Giannis went on that mini rant about how, oh, there's no failure in sports. First of all, there's definitely failure in sports. And last year was a failure for the Milwaukee Bucks, losing the first round to a Miami Heat team that was... Eight seed. They were a one seed, and you're saying, oh, man, you've just triggered something to me. I'm so sorry. (laughs) He had a valid point in what he was saying. If you look at it from a different angle, but as a one seed, and you're saying that you didn't fail, that was terrible. I'm sorry to cut you off. Oh, but I mean, Complete failure. Listen, where I come from, there's definitely such a thing as failure. Last year was a failure from Milwaukee Bucks, (laughs) and then they compounded that failure by finding a scapegoat in Budenholzer. Budenholzer. And I always felt that was the case because his job was also on the line in 2021, Durant's foot on the line, yada, yada, yada. They end up winning the championship. So he got his bacon saved there. And then this past year, that's a scapegoat. Oh, it wasn't Giannis' fault. I think with Giannis sometimes, there's this inclination to give him a pass on a lot because he's so good. He's so deadly. He's kind of this freak of nature when he's right to where you often overlook some of the head-scratching moments when he can't carry the team to victory and with his size and his talent, he should have been able to kind of lead them better against Miami. So when they got Doc Rivers, my thought was, this is probably the right move for them to make. That doesn't mean it's going to work out. Because I think that team now needed a coach with a big enough ego to contend with both Giannis and Lillard and Middleton too, who I often feel is dismissed too quickly. I think Chris Middleton's game when he's healthy is fabulous. I wish another team would really roll the dice on him and let him be a true number two somewhere, but I digress. Now you're three and seven with Doc Rivers. That tells me the egos are clashing. One of two things can happen from here. It's either going to be a Clippers situation where, okay, the initial kind of uh, turbulence is over, and then they're going to get on a roll, and they're going to steamroll their way right towards the top of these. I don't think they get the one seed, but they're going to be one of those teams that you look at and go, they can take out Boston in the Eastern Conference Final. I mean, Doc Rivers, I think, inherited a tough situation. I think that's what's kind of getting tossed out the window in this whole media landscape covering the Doc Rivers situation is that the situation that he's coming into is not an easy one, right? I mean, in this NBA, you always have to question the amount of buy-in a player is going to give you. In this, like I said, nearly centimillionaire NBA where half the players are, you know, are their grandchildren are set for life. You might not have a group that's locked in day in and day out. And when you get out of a group who gets off to a 3-7 and seven start under a borderline Hall of Fame head coach, you have to question whether or not that buy-in is there right out the gate for Milwaukee. And now it's on Doc Rivers to find that over the next four or five weeks. And I don't know if he's going to. But that's harder than it sounds. See, now, but what you're pointing at about the buy-in, 
that's an ego thing. That has nothing to do with the actual players they have. Milwaukee has brilliant players. If you gave that team to just about any coach, they'd be a playoff team, even if the coach did absolutely nothing and threw the board down and went, you guys figure it out, which is essentially what happened in Brooklyn when it was Durant and Kyrie. They didn't want to be coached because the egos were such that we don't need a coach. We can do this without a coach. So now you're in this weird bind where Doc Rivers is trying to coach and it's not going so well. Because Adrian Griffin wanted them to take accountability, got tossed after he won 70% of his games. This is what happens when you throw out the regular season. It has to mean something in terms of seeding, in terms of chemistry. And God forbid Griffin wanted it to mean something. He lost his job for it. So, no, I'm not crying any tears for Doc Rivers for getting two NBA All-Stars. All he's got to do is look at him and go, listen, I won with Pierce. I won with Garnett. I won with Allen way back in the day. Those guys played better as a team than you are right now. Yeah, you guys are more talented than any of those three guys, most likely. But imagine what we could do if you just bought into what I'm trying to tell you here. And this most recent loss at the hands of the Memphis Grizzlies, a very short-handed Memphis Grizzlies. Let me read you that starting five. I want to play a little okay. game with you guys. I don't know. Can I just interject many, real yeah, quick? Yeah. Not just not a short-handed team. <laughs> One of the worst teams. Yes. <laughs> Let me read you this starting so five, though. Bad. I bet you you guys know only half of these starting five. Santi Aldama, I happen to only know him because of some college basketball degeneracy back in the day. Zaire Williams, everyone knows him, obviously. Trey Jameson, Vince Williams Jr., and Jordan Goodwin. If I played 2K, I would have known all those guys, but I don't anymore. <laughs> Three out of five of those names, genuinely, your average NBA fan has not even heard of. And it's a starter and you got Doc Rivers yeah. and a loaded Bucks team falling to them. It's shocking, but oh, I think the first thing that comes to mind is the lack of buy-in. Like he said it after the game, we had guys, quote-unquote, in Cabo. We had guys here. This group was thinking about taking a nice seven days off for the trade deadline. They weren't playing Memphis. Yeah, the, the Milwaukee Bucks guys. I, I really like the KD kind of comparison there because that's what I'm seeing. I, Giannis is kind of, in my opinion, just on some of his comments recently, he's got like this fake leader-esque personality right now. I think he has – he definitely possesses leadership qualities. But with Dame coming over, light's getting a little more brighter in Milwaukee. I'm kind of seeing that mentality of – uh. I'm a two-time MVP, two-time defensive player of the year. Don't necessarily need to be coached. We want a Doc Rivers because he's Doc Rivers. This is going to be the most know, ridiculous though. comparison you will ever hear on Pick and Pot, but we're going to do it because I think it fits here. I don't want my leader to be a golden retriever. I want my leader to be a pit bull. <laughs> you want him to be I, – I understand exactly what you're saying with that too. They, um, The Bucks need, I think – a little more of that Giannis that we saw three, four years ago in terms of just overall everything. Uh, performance is going to be performance, but I feel like the way that he just presented himself to the media, uh, just everything, it was just so more like, yeah, this guy is a grinder. You want to be like this guy. Right now, I don't know if I want to be like Giannis so much because of how much this situation is kind of just blowing up in Milwaukee. Like, Rapidly, I too. liked his comments Rapidly. on the three-point shooting contest when I asked if he would ever consider competing. He's like, yeah, I, well, because I trust my hard work. Then why can't you shoot threes more consistently? <laughs> why can't you shoot free throws more consistently? Why, doesn't it take, why does it take you a billion years to shoot one free throw? Where's that work getting put in? That's kind of a failure. Oh, I'm sorry. I know that's a trigger word for you, Giannis. <laughs> the Bucks, they're kind of just like a big meltdown. I just want to bring up one more thing before we bounce. Clay Thompson. First time off the bench in 12 years since his rookie year. Steve Kerr wasn't even there yet. 35 points. Did they find a new role in the dubs for Clay Thompson? I think it's a mental struggle for Clay Thompson. And he's been very public about this in the media over the last couple of weeks that he's a guy who was. At one point, a perennial all-star. He was the number two splash brother. Five straight all-star appearances. And he was a, a guy that was not only getting all-star appearances, but rings while he was getting this all-star appearance. He was an all-star on a championship team. Naturally, that's going to be hard for someone. I, have, I struggle to feel bad for the guy simply because it's a very nice life to be a Golden State warrior and to be that you know, talented of a, of a hooper, but there's no doubt. It's been a struggle, and it seems that he's finally adjusting. And I think over the next few weeks to months, we might see him turn into the guy that he mentioned in his post-game press conference, Manu Ginobili, right? Can he be that 
veteran off the bench on like a, you know, Golden State, according to the Spurs in this case, championship team where Mono's the type of leader where he's doing it on the court, but also he's that veteran who's teaching how to play NBA basketball. So right now, the standings are such that the Warriors are the ninth seed in the West. The Lakers Playin'. are 10. Okay. Selfishly, I'm hoping that both teams make the play-in so that we can have a LeBron-Steph play-in game with Clay and the gang all there. Could be the last time that we see LeBron against Steph in some capacity as well. And what a way to go out in a postseason-esque environment. As far as Clay goes, I think they need him to be vintage Clay if they want to make a real run at the West. But he doesn't necessarily have to be that for them to get into the playoffs at all. He just needs to be serviceable for them to get in the playoffs. The Warriors' problems go far beyond just Clay Thompson or just Steph Curry or just Draymond Green even. That speaks to more of a roster construction thing that they didn't necessarily address at all at the trade deadline. They stood pat. Um, But he, he has the ability to be that sort of Ginobili, Ray Allen on the Heat type of shooter. And if he can be that... It gives you a different look offensively. Absolutely. I mean, 35 points off the bench. Obviously, a maneuver had to be made, and it was the right one for the first game. Steve Kerr, also, in that win, 500 career wins for him as a head coach, going down as one of the best coaches of all time. It's very, it's so crazy, man, because we saw this whole dynasty develop and kind of end in front of our eyes, but we'll see still some years left. Clay Thompson, obviously, too. Missed two huge prime years, 29 and 30 years old, ACL injury, then immediately tears his Achilles when he's coming back. That is what he's, you know, I want to say alluding to in terms of his mental struggles because I know for myself, five straight All-Star appearances, you get a season-ending injury at 29 years old, immediately come back, and then lose an entire year again at 30 years old with an injury that's even worse than the, than the knee injury that you just had. Uh, so I see the struggles. I like the Man- Manu Ginobili comparison as well. Could definitely see that. But the Dubs, a lot of work to be done there. We'll see, though. Are they? Is their run necessarily over? I don't know. But I do know that that is going to end our pick and pod. Man, this was a fun show, the three of us. A lot of fun. I know we kind of went a little long. You guys got places to be. So do I. But that is going to do it for this edition of Pick and Pod. Lots of fun NBA action as the first half wraps up. All-Star Game this Sunday in Indiana. So for Colin Lochran, Miles Grossen, I am Will Talent, and we say thank you for joining us on this edition of Pick and Pod, a production of WFUV Sports. Nice.